Yo, it's Schwartz. It's Monday, April 5. Uh, of course, uh, Monday morning, all of my weekend Andy Fractal realities come hitting me hard. Uh, I'm getting calls uh, about your, your, your recent dance party, which, by the way, congrats, 600,000 viewers, 20,000 concurrence. It's pretty amazing. Um, I know you think you're a Twitch star now. You're not. You're Andy Frasco. Uh, and here's what you are. You're a musician. First and foremost, all the other great stuff you're doing is other great stuff. First and foremost, primary, Andy Frasco, Andy Frasco in the UN. Musicians make music, songwriters, record. And here's the best part, perform. So here's why I'm pissed. I'm, I, I can't even believe this. We have two days rehearsal on the calendar, just two days for the first time ever. You have been kind and, and gracious and permitted me to organize rehearsals for your band for the first time. And what, what do I hear? I hear you miss the one of two days of rehearsal. And let me rephrase that. You didn't miss. You, just got, you guys just didn't rehearse. So I'm just reminding you, while you think you're a Twitch star, I know you're a musician. There's nothing more important than playing shows, period. Right now, your shows, they need to be dynamic. They need to have dynamic set lists. It can't be the same. You're not the Kooks. You're not the Strokes. You're not MGMT. You can't go out there and play an hour set, the same set every night. You have to show up. I'm fucking, my mind is spinning that you miss rehearsals. Get it together. Thanks. Now, a message from the UN. Had some spicy food and my mouth's on fire. Harder than anything, I'm regretting this already. Now it's living in my belly and it's still on fire. On my way to the restroom, gonna need that to apply. Oh, I got two feet on the ground, now it's burning my crown. Frasco's World Saving Podcast. I'm Andy Frasco. How's everyone doing? How you feeling on this uh, Tuesday or whenever you're listening to this podcast? Hope you're staying strong out there and staying positive because that's all we got. Positivity. We could be pessimistic like my friend Nick here. Hey, Nick. How I'm you not doing? pessimistic. You, I, I think that's a misunderstanding about me. Really? I've actually been classified as even being an optimist. I hope for the best. I just am real. I just don't sugarcoat things, I think. Yeah. But I don't expect, like, I fully expect us to be at 100% capacity at shows in September. I think a pessimist. So that's what I was going to ask you. So you're you're optimistic that this summer is going to ride. I think this vaccine seems to be doing well. The numbers, you know, I've been reading some stuff. I'm not not a doctor or a scientist, (laughs) you know. Also, it's just, come on, we need to start again. <laughs> yeah, it's time. I think everyone, even like the people who are the most scared are like, okay, we got a vaccine. 
Who knows? Yeah. You know? Anything I mean, can happen. <laughs> a whole other virus could come. Yeah, and then we're fucked again. How do you do that podcast voice? You're doing the intro. You got to teach me that. Hey, everybody. <laughs> It's so good. Oh, thanks. I'm getting I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better. Um Ooh, deep. Going deep. What's up, Nick? Nothing. You ready? We're we start writing music again. Well, I've never written with you before. Yeah, today's so the you first. you start writing music again. I write music every day. <laughs> I love writing I'm music. I'm back to writing a record. Yeah, yeah we're gonna go over to my record. buddy Drew's and we're gonna work on this tune that I kind of started the demo for mm-hmm. when we were in California, right? Yeah, and that gave you something to do because you weren't working enough. Well, it was weird because <laughs> I didn't have that much to do the last few days there. Really. Yeah. I made all the games. I'm efficient. Yeah, you are. You do quick work. And Doesn't then... it make you think that maybe everyone else is kind of lazy? <laughs> I, you know. No, I'm not saying I'm a hard worker, but I no, am efficient. No, but... I don't fuck around. When you, I get it done, and then it's done. And, until it's, unless it's like something for the podcast, and you do it the last second. Yeah, but the Vegas, we were, the Vegas thing fucked that up. Yeah, we went to Vegas. We got to gamble. Also, I don't get paid for the podcast, so that's a whole other <laughs> wrinkle to that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you're right. But no, that was just uh, because of Vegas. How we had fun. Uh, Nick was our substitute saxophone player in private Vegas party. for the private party for five people. We all got tested immediately. Everything. I got yelled at from Branch. Like it wasn't five fucking people. It was ten. It was t- whatever. <laughs> we play for thousands of people, Brian. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. We headline Red Rocks. You know. Well, and we, by we I mean you. <laughs> um, you know the reason why we have you opening the show because you told me to interview. Michael Menier. And Menard. I did. Menard. Oh, I've been calling him so Michael, Michael Menier. So Michael Menier is an interesting <laughs> relationship I have. No, he, it's fine. That's yeah. not, that could even be the right pr- pronunciation. Right. So the interesting thing about you and Menard, I sort of have the same relationship with both of you in different ways. How? Well, I'm like, so Michael is a world-class producer. You know, we haven't, no one knows. Probably some people don't know who he is. He's uh you know, some would call it EDM. I, I think he's more of hip-hop, soul music producer. I think he's one of the best. People are still copying what some stuff he made 10 years ago, you know. So he has a band, and I sort of am his, like, I help him, uh, you know, make albums. Yeah. Sort of how I make you to help, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you're, the, you're the best. Assi- we told this in the pocket. You're he, the best assistant, assistant coach. Oh, you guys talked about that? No, you, how you are the best assistant coach. So I have a very similar relationship with him in that regard. Mm-hmm. But just music instead of, and I love working with Michael. And you guys are very similar in that you're both big picture guys. Mm-hmm. You both, and I'm not so much a big picture guy sometimes. Your details. Everybody can't be a big picture guy though. That'd be stupid, <laughs> right? What? Explain you just yourself. Have giant pictures everywhere. <laughs> it's just colors. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> you need little people in the pictures too. It can't just be the big, you know. Anyway, so yeah, I love working with Menard. Menard is a, one of the most down-to-earth guys. I truly think, I don't think that many, so the word genius, Yeah. I think he's a creative genius in that um, it's just he can't help himself from making shit. I don't mm-hmm. know if he talked about uh, his visual art, too. No, we didn't get into okay, that. Okay, so he's like does all his own album covers. Oh no, no, we got into okay, that. Okay, and they're no. like amazing, and like people buy them. Yeah, as, yeah. And hang them up on their house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy just wakes up making shit when he makes breakfast. It's not like, <laughs> I don't know, like the way he makes food is like fascinates me. I'm a terrible cook. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm horrible. Just, I'm just like worthless, basically. I just did a sketch with Vince Herman where we got a whole monkfish and took drugs and we had to cut the whole thing and cook it. It I made me kind of want to be a vegan. 
Really? It was just like, I couldn't look at... I don't at, know about vegan. I could go vegetarian. Yeah, maybe go vegetarian. I just think vegan can be a tad elitist. <laughs> oh, you have me. to be rich to be vegan, that's my point. <laughs> if we made being vegan more accessible, maybe, you know? But there is like an elitist thing to being a vegan. So is it elitist to be healthy? No. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not, I think it's a little elitist to tell people, you need to eat this way, but they can't afford or access that. But that's like the same thing with organic. Yeah, there's that level. But I think vegans even like a step beyond organic <laughs> in, that, in that regard. But if you are telling poor people they need to eat organic, you need to fuck off. <laughs> okay. Now, why is that funny? Just the way because I'm it's it. kind of true. It's like it's very elitist to be like I'm right, you're wrong. But maybe they want to be vegan. You know more about sampling than I do. Why did Why did Girl Talk get so fucking? See, that's trouble. a whole nother level. He's just taking two songs and smacking them on top of each other. So what's the difference between doing that and making a sample? Well, what Menard's doing is like, it's not like, first of all, the whole song isn't the sample. He's, it's like one part of the song. It's yeah. like the, it's, and it's like he'll pitch it down and, you know, re-EQ it or, you know, put it in a different key or stretch it out so it's way slower, which makes it mm -hmm. sound all fucking weird, you know? Yeah. Like, that's why half of Menard, I think Menard's music's haunted a little bit. He's dude, Menor's haunted. When the interview was happening, this was the weirdest thing. Menor is fucking haunted, and no one will ever. And I don't even yeah. believe in ghosts. But if if there is one thing that will make me believe in ghosts, it's Michael Menor. Yeah, because I was doing the interview, and he was in his studio, and all of a sudden, this like weird, desolate music was playing under. I'm telling you, under man. his talking, I'm like, dude, is there a band playing? He's like, no, man, it's completely quiet and you'll hear it in the interview where there's like this kind of like this it's haunting electronic music yeah that's i mean Menor is haunted dude yeah i think so too it was such a crazy interview have you like, met him in person yet no but we another thing i love about him let me get to this yeah you're pretty tall but he's even taller than you i bet he's six three or six he four. said he's six three two fifty he's a physically imposing guy with like the personality of like the sweetest like childlike energy like the good kind of childlike yeah, but still like, like an adult and his master. life is so fucking do you'll hear this interview it's one I mean, of the i already best, know you, you know, know it mean, but i've spent hours with the guy but you yeah get, you help me breathe i think him. this is going to be one of the best life stories you've had on the show i i, I haven't I, heard all your episodes this is why i bumped this up to this week because this story is insane and this i'm not gonna even i just want you to enjoy this story it informs everything he does yeah I'm telling you, the guy is. There's one Michael Menner. Yeah, it's true. There's seven thousand. I'm surprised he's not million Nick Gerlachs. I'm surprised there. he's not more famous. Yeah, I mean he's had his times, but you know it's like he should be more famous. Mm -hmm. In a just world, Michael Menner would be like the famous one. Yeah. We only have three episodes left. I'm sad. Shit show. I'm sad too. Let's what make a, a season three. I'm down. Someone's oh, got to give us money, but they will. They'll Someone will do it. People are always giving you money for stuff. <laughs> Speaking of that, we have Zesty Beverages. That's the name of the company? That sponsors the podcast? That's new. Uh, yeah. That's a fucking awesome company. Dude, name. they're hard kombucha. It's pretty good. I, uh, I'm i not a, really a seltzer dude, you know. I'm, it was, yeah. I had to do the fucking uh, the, uh, twisted tea for all summer that I can't even smell a seltzer anymore. In yeah. Life. Twisted tea, though. What a great summer they had. Oh, my God. I, what a great summer they gave. Shout out to Twisted Tea for paying us. And it's a weapon against racism now, I guess. I know, dude. I just, it was like perfect timing. Like, we were promoting Twisted D, and then all of a sudden, that viral video How came happy out. are they that the cam was going that way and not the other way, I though? Know, seriously. That's great for PR. I know. That's why it was everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, zesty beverages, hard kombucha. 
Go check it out in Colorado. They're all at the Whole Foods. Um, it's bomb. And if, if it's you in don't, Whole Foods, it's good, right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, they're cool guys. I, hang, I hung out with him, and uh, he's a really good guy, and he loves music. And mm. so go grab them if you're in Colorado area. They're out of Whole Foods. Um, and if you don't drink alcohol, they also have just the regular kombucha. Like you, you like those probiotics. Don't no, you? actually, not big on kombucha. Kombucha. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. It just tastes like the earth to me. <laughs> yeah. I like other things. Yeah. Well, know? but I'll try it because it's zesty. I do like zest. <laughs> I just love that company. Name. It's it makes, a cool name. It makes me want to drink it. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. So go check out. Uh, zesty beverages. Yeah. Um, go get it. Um, actually, the blueberry mojito one is bomb as fuck. You that like sounds, mojito? I like blueberries. It's fire. I like mojitos. Yeah, it's Mint, I like a minty flavor. Yeah. That's why I've been brushing my teeth lately. <laughs> really? At least every day. I brush my teeth after I do coffee, which is like detriment because I forget that you're coming over, so I haven't brushed my teeth yet. Oh, it's fine. All right. Can you smell it? No. All right. Um, Are we done? I want to talk more. Oh, I know we're not done yet, but we got a we got a couple things we need to promote. I am playing Bonnaroo. I'm proud of you. Yeah, that's and a big deal for I'm you. I'm more right? proud of Ernie. Because <laughs> I'm just everybody's always congratulating you. Like we were in that text <laughs> chain today, so we're in this text chain. We're in a fancy football or basketball league, and everybody goes. Also, Craig Broadhead from Turquoise is in it. They are also in Bonnaroo. and I can't remember who said it. They're like, "Congratulate Andy and Craig on blah blah blah," and I'm like, "Yo." And Ernie's in the group, too. And I'm like, hey, and congratulate Ernie, who's also <laughs> playing Bonnaroo. It's just not fair, those I guys. I know. Sometimes. I know. Sax players don't get any love. That's, I don't know. You know, Ernie's been working hard. Yeah, you He's have. put up with you for like 15,000 years. <laughs> no, that's hard enough. Um, we got the shit show this uh, Thursday. Episode 7 is Kitchen Dwellers. Mahali. Um, top, Carl Denton teaches us Tai Chi. His Golden Messenger. We have Greg um, Ormond from Pigeons doing oh. a, a sketch. Our interview is Trixie Mattel. You know Trixie? Yeah. That, I was there that, for the interview. Oh, that yeah, was actually <laughs> kind of the funniest interview, I think, of the whole season. Dude, it was the best one. And, you know, she's a drag queen, on, and she has a show on Viceland. She's she like won one of the one most of the famous seasons, drag queens one of the besides RuPaul. RuPaul. She won one of the All-Star seasons or yeah, something. She's a bad I asked bad my ass. friend that's a fan. And then the musical guest is Goose. So. Goose. We got three more, guys. Um, a lot of jam more, bands. Yeah, we got. I just. We, the next three are just like 10 guests each show. <laughs> yeah, we're banging it out, guys. We're slamming this. We put bit. a lot of work into this, so. Um, yeah, go watch it. Just download it or something. Yeah, no captions. You don't have to watch it. Just buy the ticket. But it's free. Yeah. And. Um, we're at seven episodes now, so Bam. you could binge it. I know how much people like binging. You know, if you want to wait till all nine episodes, eat a are couple done, edibles eat it and fucking binge this shit. It's a good show. Nick and I worked our dicks off on this thing. Yeah, what little dicks we had to begin with. <laughs> and then um, what else? Oh, I'm going on tour uh, tomorrow, Birmingham, Alabama, the seventh. Still not sold out. Come on, let's go. What? Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. Birmingham right. is half um, capacity. That's. That's bullshit. I don't know. Every t- but this happens every time in Birmingham. Wednesday, if I play during the week, half the people show up. If I play the weekend, it's sold out. Because it, maybe they have jobs. You know? <laughs> Some people out there have this thing where they get up and they go somewhere every day. Yeah. <laughs> but not the other cities where are you during playing the week in Birmingham? are sold out. What's the venue? Z- Zydeco um, or whatever? Ironworks. Oh, I haven't done that one. That's it's a, a little bigger. That's, yeah. yeah it's we weren't that dope. big in the South. It's like, um, they, it's a big venue, so it's they put it to half capacity, and we're like half of that. So come on, Birmingham. Let's, let's come rock. Come on. Um, Conway, South Carolina. Myrtle Beach. You never been there? Not really. My uncle has a timeshare there, though. We're going <laughs> <laughs> to hang out with Stasic and Bayless and Umphreys on the 10th and Goose. 
Lev, um, that's sold out. Oh, that's the Suwani? Mm-hmm. I wish you could come to that. I'm fucking pissed I'm not going to that. I know. What the fuck? Why didn't anyone put you artist at large? Um, they have artists at large, too. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, like, it's a violin player. No, no. Come on. They have an artist at large for that show? Yeah, there's like four of them. I didn't know that. Someone needs to be like, yo, just host the stage, Nick. All right, we're just going to get Make fun you. of Bayless. I'm going to be your agent. All right, new thing. Andy's my agent. Okay. You can have 15%, too, because I'll be my own manager. Ooh, that's a good deal. 15%. Right, I'll consider that. And that includes the cameo thing. Deal? Okay. Since you let me promote it on your show to Deal. start. Deal. Okay. All right. Andy I Frasco now, is my agent I now, now represent Fuck. Nick's Carlock. You know um, what sucks for me? You're better well, than my old agent. Well, <laughs> you know, at least it's a step Repsy. up. Repsy. Repsy. <laughs> um, Springfield, Missouri on the 13th. That's pretty sold out. And that's, Fayetteville that's Sean's is sold out. That's Sean's hometown, right? Yeah, Springfield. He's going back for one day. He's like, I'm going in. I'm going, I'm going, going in going and going out. Back, back to Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> And then uh, one last thing. Um, I like that we shook on an audio podcast. Yeah, you're in. You're, I'll be your agent. But we shook, but no one can see it. So uh-huh. it doesn't really, anyway. Um, June, I just, I just picked up, uh, we just announced those dates. Oklahoma City on the 15th, Kansas City. Go Thunder. Cedar Rapids. Tanking the right way. Omaha, Nebraska. Have you seen how many picks, first round picks, the Thunder have in the next four years? Yeah, it's insane. It's like 42 it's like, picks. It's like every pick. Yeah. Well, I think insane. there's one year where they have every pick in the first round. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> Then I am going to St. Louis. I'm going to a suburb, Aurora, Illinois. That's in June? I'm going to Indianapolis. I'm going back that's, to your hood, bud. Maybe I'll go and hang out. No, I'm going to put you as the opener. Just hanging out? No, no, I'll put you as the opener. Do your one-man show. Or I can maybe bring my jazz trio. You know, I'm actually looking for an opener for these 10 days. Like anything? I thought Kyle was doing this. He's not doing June. He's doing the May one? If you want to be the one-man band for that, I'll, I'll book you. Maybe. All right, let's talk about it. I'll I'll hit I'll hit up your agent. Um, huh. June twenty fourth is Indianapolis, and then two nights in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so go and grab some tickets. All right. Last thing before we go to uh, Michael's interview. Yeah. What? Um, I actually don't want to ruin it. What would you say going into this interview? What do you think the listeners need to say? What do they need to what? Think. They don't need to think anything. If they don't know anything about this guy. Just be open. I mean, just be. Here's the thing with Menor. He's extremely genuine. <laughs> Yeah. You know, just everything he says is true. Okay. <laughs> I don't even gentlemen. know what he said. What if he says, like, Nick Gerlach's a garbage human? And then he just <laughs> he did talk up. about his uh, his heroin addiction. Or oh, really? Addiction. That's something that we haven't gotten into too much. But, you know, the guys, just, just buckle in. Yeah, buckle Get in. Get something this to drink. Is, don't watch the- a TV. Like, don't. this is one you want to, like, give your full attention. Yeah, this is podcast history. It kind of reminds me of, like, Mike Dillon. Like Michael Dillon's show and was how that one? He, I haven't seen that one. Dude, he's crazy. Mike's my man, but he was fucking crazy. He was like I, shitting on stage and doing heroin and like and just like relapsing and then like what? having to go to like methadone clinics before before gigs. Like, I didn't know him. I don't dude, know him very well. Insane. He's in like Primus. A, no, I know who he is and I appreciate his show and everything. I like his thing. It's like very unique. Yeah, I like it too. He's punk rock. Anyway, here's what you should take going into Menor. Have fun. Just give it your full attention. Yeah, give it your full attention. All right, guys. We'll catch you on the tailor. Hey, it's Nick. Uh, I'm introducing my dear friend, Michael Menner, because Andy doesn't have Ableton on his computer. <laughs> Michael's a legendary electronic producer in the hip-hop world. Chris, play some Michael. We 
different next few albums together. We're working on a track right now. Uh, he's a hilarious, nice, genuine guy. He's, you know, done it all. Michael Menard, everybody. Enjoy. Michael? Hey, how you doing, Andy? What's going on? How's your world? Uh, you know, it's uh it's pretty uh timid. <laughs> you, you live in the COVID dream or what? Live in the COVID dream. I mean, I've been isolated on the coast for about four years before COVID, so I've got, I got pretty practice. Yeah, tell me about that. Why why'd you pick the coast? Where are you right now? Uh, I'm like uh right where Sonoma County and Mendocino meet on the coast of California. Oh, right on the yeah, yeah, you're. You, aren't you like close to Mickey Hart? Don't you do a lot of stuff at a studio? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've been uh, I've been working with him uh, since 2016, uh, producing and sound designing, and ra- random stuff. I went on tour with him a couple times. Um, but yeah, it's just been a, uh, you know, it's been a. Uh, I, I I was traveling out here in 2016 a lot, and I think I was only home from like January to October. I was only home like 20 days, so I was uh. I just decided to move out here because 
who doesn't want to live in California if you get a chance, right? Yeah, totally. And, uh, yeah, and I just um, was looking at places and found a place in the coast kind of far away and didn't realize how far it was from civilization until I moved here. But uh, <laughs> it's been a dream since. What do you like about isolation? Um, I like being able to get away from, I, you know, I feel like in society you, you get like a shared reality with the people you're around, you know? Like yeah. you, you kind of, if you're around a certain amount of people, you kind of share a headspace. And here I'm just in my own headspace kind of. So it's like I can unplug from all of the other just not new, not necessarily distractions but just different points of view and uh you know uh, stimulus it was a lot it was a lot easier to live in isolation when i had touring and stuff because you could you know i came back to isolation rather than just being there like right now it feels weird even just talking to you you know <laughs> yeah bro i feel that forget that this is a thing that you used to do you know yeah you know uh, it's like we forget like i i feel like a lot of people are gonna lose communication skills when we get back from this fucking thing that way with our phones you know like you, it's, it's like people are already on their phones when you go out in the public you know they don't stand in a line people don't want to talk to you uh that kind of stuff and now it's like there's even more reason to be afraid of each other so. <laughs> how'd you how'd you get in touch like how'd you start working with mickey hart and like den like at the denco and stuff um you know jonathan singer yeah he, uh, he, he does visuals for like tipper and dead and company and the grays um he was a friend of mine and he just you know he works with mickey and he, they shared the same manager at the time. And Mickey was looking for people to kind of help him after Fare Thee Well to bring, uh, you know, his rig and his vision uh, into the into kind of like the future and just have some people that kind of can see eye to eye with him and help him uh, articulate his ideas, you know? So uh, so I, I went out there. I had an open-ended ticket. I was really scared. I'd never been in a situation like that where, you know, like a legend asks you to come out and see them and doesn't tell you anything. He just said bring some of your special sauce. And I was like, all right. So I packed up all sins and little things I could use to like affect stuff. And I got there and he was like, he was away. He had, he had been in the studio and he went back to his house and was just chilling. So I just like started setting up in his stuff and playing with the stuff. And I set up all these synths, right? First thing he does when he walks in, he goes, what are those? And I go, Oh, those are synthesizers. He's like, I hate synthesizers. And I'm like, I'm out of here. But, uh, you know, he, uh, I showed him what I'd been working on with his, with one of his files. And he just kind of did this thing where like he stomped one leg to the beat and another one. He's like, yeah, it's got a groove and just started like dancing around the room. And then they stepped, they started calling me back and I just became like a, you know, someone he trusted, I guess in the studio and someone that he couldn't scare away. So, yeah. Tell me about that. Do, do you, I mean, I've heard a lot of stories about your life. I mean, I heard one story that you had ghosts in your house in Denver, multiple experiences, and had stories about it. What, tell me about this. Like, what's going on? What, what, what do you think uh, your life is making you ghosts follow you? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, you know what I noticed from seeing ghosts and things? I, I noticed that they kind of hang out in your peripheral, where it feels like they don't... They, they, they kind of, like, they'll walk in places where you don't see them fully so you don't have an idea to i, I mean for, in, in my in my experiences I've, I've seen like full apparitions for like a split second in like clear view but a lot of times like, like when i was in denver my wife would go uh, she was a nurse so she would walk from our our uh, our bedroom upstairs into the kitchen and i was in the living room that kind of wrapped around and uh, i remember i was like playing playstation or something one day when she was heading to work and i saw like you know i saw what i thought was her walk down the stairs and go in the kitchen and, and I was like, hey, can you give me a drink? And like 20 minutes later, I was like, man, she's been in the kitchen a while. And I went in and it was like three hours after she went to work. And I was like, oh, crap. I saw a woman like walk down the stairs into the kitchen. Wasn't my wife. What? Hold on. Hold on. This is real? 
Real. Yep. So you've seen this ghost multiple times? Yeah. Yep. And uh, like I'd be upstairs and I'd hear someone knock on our like our, our glass uh, like screen window uh, on the front door. And I'd go down there and then I'd hear someone knocking on a window upstairs in the back of the house that didn't have a porch on it, you know, like just like on the outside of a glass window in the back of the house. So it kind of fuck with me like that. And oh my, my engineer, you're sleeping on the couch right now. My best friend, uh, Jason Scholarships, Born Town, <laughs> whatever you want to call him. Uh, he, he's seen a lot of it. We had these things we called space spiders. These little like black like shadows that would just like run across the keyboard and stuff when we work in the studio and just like weird, just weird apparitions, you know? There was a light that we, I, I kept going down to the, the, the studio basement we had and there's one light in the corner of this little crawl space door that was like really weird that was always on, right? I'd like go downstairs, I'd be like, man, you forgot to turn the light on. And I was like, after a while, I was like, hey man, can, when you're done in the night, can you just turn it off? And he's like, yeah, for sure. I'd be, it'd be on again. And then one time I actually unscrewed it a little bit just so it was like hanging. Came back the next morning, it was screwed in and on. What the fuck? How long did you live like that for? Five years. I mean, it's never menacing. You know, it's like even when I saw the ghost in like the corner of my eye, it didn't scare me. You know, it only scared me when I realized that it wasn't my wife that had walked by. You know, do you, so did, like, you, did you ever have communications with them? No, not really. My, my friend Jason had a dream where like he heard her screaming super loud and like terrified him. But that's about it. Oh, so what is like what is your take on death? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I feel like whatever energy. I mean, I feel like, you know, like heaven and hell or the ideas of that are kind of like if you make peace with the things you've done in life, your brain and the energy you have when you leave kind of takes you there. You know, if yeah. you're sitting there thinking, man, I was a horrible person. I fucked up people. You know, it's going to like it's going to make you like not go to the right place, you know, because your energy is kind of like in this spot where you're in turmoil. I think that some people that have that kind of unfinished business might kind of let their energy linger and be able to materialize it in kind of a on another plane that we can kind of see sometimes if we're loose. So it's like the people who are, who don't, aren't ready to die. They stay. Yeah. Yeah, or the, the people that aren't accepting that they're dying, you know, like, like, you know, you hear about ghosts a lot of times in like tragic accidents where people die in a flash and they don't, you know, like a car accident or, you know, a murder or that kind of thing where like, I think that they, it was just, you know, they didn't accept the fact that they're dead and mm -hmm. they become this like, you know, in the, in between. Have, have you ever had any near death experiences? Oh yeah, man. I was uh back back when weed was illegal, I sold a half a pound of weed to some uh to some uh Sir thirteen Mexican mafia dudes in London. Or <laughs> uh, not in Loveland, Colorado. Um and uh they pulled a shotgun and a couple knives on me, jumped on my back, uh tried to slit my throat. And then they then like I because I, I, I grabbed the gun away from my face when they they like pulled it because they were just kinda like give us your money, drop everything. I was like, all right, let me go. They're like, no, this is how it's going down. And I was like, fuck, I don't know what that means. Does that mean they're going to kill me? I think training day just come out. I'd seen that bathtub scene, you know? Oh my God. Hold on. So you got, you, you just laid in so much information here. So you sold a half pound or you bought a half pound from them. We were, we were growing at the time and trying to make some extra, you know, as a musician, you can't really yeah. hold a real job. So. <laughs> so you're growing at the time and why did they want to kill you though because you didn't give them enough or it, it was just the guy i had that had led me there he was i think he was like buying meth from him or something you know he was a guy uh -huh. that i had known intermittently and he'd been buying little quantities for me and stuff and he's like oh i got some friends that want to buy some stuff i think he was just leading me there to like you know get a little bit from them and give them something that they can have you know uh-huh 
you know, a half pound of weed is twenty four hundred dollars. You know, yeah. so it's like it was. It, it, it's not that much money for your life. You know, between three guys, it's eight hundred a piece to kill me. <laughs> yeah, like so. I don't get why someone would kill someone over twenty four hundred bucks. I think I was like a lot bigger than they thought. You know, because I'm six foot three. You know, two hundred fifty pounds, and. When I came in, they just kind of, because they were kind of shaky when they're holding the guns. And that's why I kind of, after like a minute or two, I was just like, I just pulled the gun away from my face because I was like, man, this guy's going to twitch and blow my head off with this thought off shotgun. Uh, and like right when I did that, I was sitting on a bed and the guy next to me with the knife like jumped on my back and I was holding the gun on all fours. And he like the third dude was kicking me in the back of the head and the, and the side of the head and my face. The dude with the gun was holding it with one hand and punching me. And the guy on my, like the guy that was next to me was like on my back trying to slit my throat. And they actually tried to cut the gun off my I caught my hand out of the gun off the top of my knuckles and uh I got some scars right here. And what, like, from what? cuts? What? They're cutting your your they're trying yeah. to cut your throat? Like on my back, he was like trying to get the knife around. I was like elbowing him with the gun in my hand, trying to like get him off me. And uh and the the guy with the gun was like screaming, like, let go of the gun. And I was like, let me go, like, let go of the fucking gun. I'm like, let me go. They're like, all right, let go, let go of the gun, we'll let you go. And I like I, the guy got off my back and I stood up. And right as I stood up, the guy that uh, was kicking me was like, get the fuck out of here. He lunged at me with the, with the knife and he got me like right below the heart. I actually pulled it down and like my thumb splayed open like a hot dog right there. Uh, and then I like drove my stick shift car to like an intersection and plopped out. It was crazy because like when I first leaned on the car, I couldn't get my I couldn't hold the keys with his hand. So I was like trying to get the keys out of my hoodie pocket. And I'd like smeared all this blood all over my windshield. I was like leaning on it. So it was like this weird like movie scene where oh. I was, it was and I was driving under lights and all like the, the lights hit the red and it made like the car kind of red inside. Were you like getting like dizzy from losing all this blood? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't really painful, but it was crazy. Like you feel your, you feel the spot and it feels like a CPR dummy, you know, cause your nerves are all shot. And so it just feels like you're touching rubber. That's like volcanoing blood. So it was really weird. So you're, they stabbed you in, 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 they went in the, the body. Front of my uh went through the front and back of my stomach punctured my pancreas and cut my liver almost in half what the fuck michael did you think you're like okay what's going through your head did you think you're dying oh, i thought i was dying you know it was definitely like i and i was in a town that I'd, i i'd been around but i didn't know where the hospital was or anything you know yeah and like i was, i just got to an intersection where i saw cars and i just kind of like drove in the middle of it like laid on my horn and flopped out of my car and like got up was like running back through through the traffic to like knock on people's windows like hey call for help you know and everyone was just kind of like locking their door like yo this crazy long-haired bloody dude's trying to get in my car so no uh, one helped you eventually some like the third or fourth car i went to someone like got out and was like yo go to the side of the road and what's crazy is they were worried because like one of the dudes had like a suspended license he's like oh shit i'm not supposed to be driving but he's like the dude that helped me you know um and then uh coincidentally someone that worked at uh at my dentist's office in loveland uh one of the one of the uh dental hygienists happened to be walking her dog on that street and saw me and she had like she carries a, like a tourniquet with her all, all times because she's like a medical professional and she like came and like helps out the bleeding but i remember like looking up it was like kind of snowing a little bit it was in december and i looked up at this like brick house right and there's this dude just outside the window smoking a cigarette just like kind of like looking down at me like shaking his head it just kind of stuck with me oh my god like what's fucked up is like no one is trying to help you and you're <laughs> bleeding out the first cop that came on the scene, he just took out his notebook and started asking me questions about a knife fight I'd been in. And I was like, dude, I was, I was stabbed. I was like, please help me. You know, Hold he on. was just trying to. How did you last this long? Like, what are you telling your brain? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. I mean, like, you're yeah, going I mean, to, you're bleeding you're, out. 
it's it's i mean it's it's half panic and it's half kind of weird peacefulness you know because you're you're you don't have time to be really worried your body's just like let's get this done let's figure this out you know yeah and i mean i remember like my my legs starting to get numb from like losing blood and that's when i started kind of freaking out you know yeah uh and then when you know when i got in the ambulance i kept asking like oh i'm gonna be okay right and they're like well you know we've seen worse but you're, you're, you're hit pretty bad you know and yeah. they didn't know if it was like under like it nicked my heart or anything like that so it was a it was a pretty rough rough time and then you know and then when, like the sur- surgeons don't really have a good bedside manner you know they have to like see people as like car parts kind of so like when I, when the surgeon like was starting to put me under they were like waiting for the ekg and then they were waiting for the guy that could the technician that could see it and then the guy that got the wrong one and it was like half an hour of me waiting there to see if they can operate on me and he's like listen it's a 50 50 chance you're gonna live we just got put you under and cut you open did you have like, oh. any friends that were like there with you did you call anybody like were you, were you dealing with this by yourself yeah i called my girlfriend at the time and i she was uh she was at my house with uh with derek from pretty lights because we were in a group together at the time pretty lights and a band called listen and i, I you know I, I called her because i had her number memorized and i was like yo just tell him to clean up the house in case the cops come and you know blah blah tell him i'm gonna be at this hospital you know Damn, you're like micromanaging a fucking drug deal while you're fucking dying, Michael. What the fuck? I got to shout that out to you. That is, that's insane, bro. Damn. Because you don't want to go to jail for the half pound of weed you have. <laughs> crazy is the cops are like, well, if you can get any more of that weed, we could like DNA test it against the stuff we find and try to catch these guys. I was like, nah, man, I'm not bringing you guys no weed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not bringing you near them. They just tried to kill me over a hat for 2,500 bucks. Damn. So yeah, that was my near-death experience, you know. So when you're at the hospital, tell me about that. Did you like when these moments of like near it was, death? Like you know, like people would like come in the room and just look like, oh my god, you know, like it, like you you'd look for that like look of uh, you know comfort from a doctor, but people were just like, oh damn, he's fucked up, you know. Yeah. Even, that's what I remember is people like walking up. They'd be like, "What the? Oh, damn, homie, you're you're fucked up." You know, <laughs> I'm just like, "Oh man, don't tell me that." <laughs> so how'd they fix it? Did they how'd they stop the bleeding? Like, what what happened? How'd you stay alive? I start from like under my uh my sternum down to my belly, past my belly button. Um, they cut me open and just fixed me up. I had a I had like nine months of physical therapy. They told me I'd never be able to paint or play keyboards or anything again. Um, it was pretty crazy, you know? It was, uh, they had to go in, like, my tendon had snapped back to, like, below my wrist. So they had to, like, wait till it, till it loosened, because it, it, like, tightens up after you get hurt. And then they have to, like, wait for it to loosen up again so they can do surgery. So I basically didn't have a thumb for, like, a month. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was also crazy because the, the, you know, Sir 13 had a hit out on me in the hospital. So I was, like, on some Godfather shit. Like, hold on, what? Who's that? The gang? Yeah, the, 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 the Mexican. The, the the Colorado version of the Mexican mafia, I guess you know, is it was loosely affiliated. It was just a bunch of kids, you know. They weren't like they didn't have like ties to like any cartels or anything per se, but they were just organized in that region, you know. Oh. Um, and, and you know they had uh, they basically didn't want me to to let the cops know what happened, so they were trying to get, you know, they, they the cops got a tip off that they were trying to kill me in the hospital, and uh, and so I was like under police protection and under a fake name in like a different wing than what I was supposed to be. Uh, so people had like say a code name and like a fake name and stuff like that to go see me. Oh my fucking god, my! I thought you just got cut or something. You, I mean, when when fucking Nick Gerlock told me this story, I'm like, oh my god. What were you into drugs? Like, were you like, uh, were you an addict of anything when you were younger, or like, what was going on? 
right around that time, I started experimenting with some opiates and things, you know. Uh, I think it was just like smoking weed and dealing it and things like that. It didn't. It made me more paranoid. Yeah. And and I think one of the guys that we were like getting getting uh, weed from kind of was like, "Hey, man, you try out some oxycontin," you know. And then it just led to like just experimenting that kind of stuff. And then you know, uh, after getting stabbed, I like uh, I I just I fell back into it because like I couldn't work a job. My band had taken off without me. I was just like. I don't know what I'm living for, you know, like everything I wanted to do in life, I can't do anymore. I can't even hold a job because they can't hire me because I can't carry more than 20 pounds with my stitches, you know. Did Hold on. So Pretty Light, you guys, they, you, he fired you or did you quit or like you just, what happened? Just kind of, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It was just like, I, I was, you know, we had, we had dropped the album in October. I got stabbed in December and it was like blowing up. So he was like going out and hitting shows and stuff like that. I was just in recovery. I was, you know, I was, I had other things to deal with. And by the time I got out, I think it was just like the shit had, you know, we, we didn't, we were friends. We didn't have any contracts or anything. So it was just the shit had blown up past any of our expectation. I think that just for whatever reason, it just, I wasn't a part of that story anymore. You know, it was, I mean, it was a weird feeling for me. It's like, it was, it was something that like that was part of the reason I think I fell deeper into addiction because I was just like I was heartbroken, you know, I like I lost my best friend and my my musical partner, you know, and, and, and we're good. I, I, I don't blame him for it. You know, it's like who knows what you would do if someone that you were, you know, living with and doing that shit just all of a sudden got stabbed and was not functioning for nine months to a year, you know? Oh, my God. But it's like even past that. I feel like it's. Yeah. So you start getting into opiates because you because of depression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got back into them. You know, I was into it before that, but it was just like, I got out of the hospital and I was just like living with my parents again. You know, it was just, I was like, what, what the fuck am I going to do? You know, like, I can't, like, I, I don't, I didn't, I, at the time, I still couldn't like use my thumb that well. So I was like trying to play guitar or play keys. It was just like, it was just torture. You know, it just made me feel like it made me realize like the lack that there was rather than like the invigoration of playing music, you know? What, what is it about opiates that made you get back into it? Was it the pain or? the numbness you know it was the fact that it like it quieted all of the all of like the the man you fucked up man you ruined your life you know all that shit in my head that was going on you know yeah man did you were you self-conscious with yourself growing up or did you did you have confidence or i mean i was you know i was i was born in poland we were refugees to germany uh because my dad was like a political activist in poland so we were political refugees um, so we escaped when I was like three years old to Germany and then we came here, but I was like just an only kid kind of living in between cultures, you know, I do, I wasn't all the way Polish and I wasn't all the way American when I was growing up because my parents had a very traditional Eastern European thing. So, you know, I, I would see my American friends and be like, oh man, these guys have trampolines and could be out all the time. And, you know, they get like pizza parties, all this stuff. And I got this like sauerkraut and sausage and stuff, you know? <laughs> oh my, hold on. So you're, why, why, why did you have, uh, what did your dad do that made you had to get out of Germany? Um, my dad, basically, he was, uh, he, he, when he was a kid, he started learning English because he, he was, he just liked books and things like that and, and English literature. And then he, he studied English and became an English professor there. And then he was drafted to the army and, uh, and was a beret out there. And he actually, through his through knowing English, he got out of actually serving because he, he went to the doctor and was trying to like make a bullshit excuse of like not having to serve. And the doctor's like, "All right, you can quit fucking with me. I can see that you can read English. I got all these medical textbooks I can't read. If you translate them for me, I'll give you like leave so you can see your newborn son and stuff." So he was doing that, and because he spoke English, 
and was a professor, he got to be one of the few people that left communism to go to, to, to London once a year to go like immersively kind of understand the culture. He would go and bring back like banned literature and banned music, you know, and like distribute it to his friends and stuff. And he would uh, translate banned movies live, like at like little private theaters, you know, like after hours where like he'd stand there and like say the subtitles before there were subtitles, you know. Holy shit. I mean, his friends were his friends were pretty hardcore. His friends would like hold up trains and like pay the guy off to like get fuel from like fuel convoys because people were like everything was rationed. And, you know, it was like it was I mean, I remember we had like there was ration cards you had to have ration cards and money and the stores had to have food and there was never food on the shelves it was like the crazy it was like the toilet paper aisle during like march last year you know so tell me about so living basically as like you know in a communist country what what did you learn from it like uh uh i mean I, I guess i mean i was too young to really understand it then but like from hearing what my parents told me and the little bits i picked up like I could, I, I, you just see people afraid, you know, you see the, and, and in a lot of ways, a lot of governments are doing this now where it's like, they make people kind of intimidated into turning it on each other, turning against each other, you know, like in, in Poland and in Russia and the communist, you know, the, the, the Eastern Bloc, um, there was a lot of like neighbors that would get scared and kind of like snitch on their neighbor because they saw something shady that was, was or was not, you know, organization or whatever. And the police would intimidate people. So you saw people kind of, become very uh skeptical and paranoid of each other you know yeah did and, yeah it was i mean it was it was weird you know like i mean i remember uh my parents talking about like there was a there was a guy that uh you know did self-immolation where he set himself on fire in the middle of the square in krakow and people just walked by because they didn't want to even look because they knew that if they looked they, they may be seen as like a, you know a conspirator or co-conspirator so how so why'd you have to move countries like what who ratted you out who ratted your dad out what happened like a lot of my dad's friends were getting picked up and, and like on like bullshit charges and just sent to prison for a year or two, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, a lesson or like a, a, a scare tactic. And he was like one of the only ones that had a wife and a kid. And he was just like, listen, I've seen the Western because like the whole thing, too, with communism, this is what this is what I, this is actually what I learned, because my dad had been outside of it into like capitalism and the Westerns, you know, the other the other part of the world that, that is considered Western civilization. And, you know, he saw it as like this beautiful place where people can express themselves and you can, you know, you can eat food because it's there and stuff. But my mom was so scared that like, I remember the day that we got to Germany, we went to like the, uh, the Capitol building, whatever, like the place where we could seek asylum, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was a bank holiday, so it was closed. And my mom was just like, oh, I knew this wasn't going to work out. And like, she was so indoctrinated with, uh, with the propaganda that she was just like, this place is evil. This place is bad. They're going to find it. You know, like she was just like certain that like capitalism was like the devil, like she'd been taught in school. And, you know, I remember seeing her on the steps, just crying and being like, I want to go home. This isn't safe, you know? And it was, uh, and, and that was one of those things that I realized it's like, man, you can see this world in front of you. That's like people are being peaceful and, 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 and normal. And you can see it as evil because of what the government tells you, you know? So it's just basically propaganda. Propaganda. And because they, they close off the borders, you're just stuck with that, you know? So it's like, if you grow up there, it's like, I mean, it's like North Korea, you know, where a lot of people actually do think that, that the, you know, the Supreme leader is, you know, some kind of deity. Mm-hmm. So tell me about do, do you, resentment. Did you ever have resentment? Like who were you closer with your mom or your dad? Uh, I would say, I mean, growing up, probably my dad at first, because my mom worked a lot, you know, like, I mean, I remember my mom, my mom had a great work ethic, you know, she would, she worked two jobs and got her PhD at the oh same time. God. You know, she started out working, uh, you know, 
washing dishes at a, at a diner in in Bertha, Colorado, you know, mm-hmm. for like two dollars change, you know, and she ended up being the breadwinner in our family and just, but she was always gone. She was like going to China to set up because she was an agricultural, uh, she was in the agricultural industry and she uh, she was a plant pathologist. So she'd go to China and study grains and set up labs. Go to Argentina, uh, you know, go to um, just all over the world, you know. My dad was more, uh, you know, my dad, my dad was a drummer when he was growing up. Um, so, you know, he played in like little side rock bands. He, he, uh, he was a photographer too. So he was more interested in the arts and that's the kind of stuff that I gravitated towards. And he was also a tinkerer. So like he built like a monome with me, you know, he'd like help me build, <laughs> you know, a, a rack to put my, my rack mount keyboards in and stuff like that. Yeah. So we do little projects together and he'd teach me how to like, you know, our, when our, our, our shitty little tour van, uh, would break down he'd help me like change the brakes and stuff you know did you grow up poor or well off or at first but my parents really just worked their ass off when we got here you know yeah. by like second year we were here they they bought a house you know so it was like and, and i mean we we're still poor when they bought a house they had like the people that helped us get here kind of helped them you know with the deposit and stuff and just wanted to help us out there was this mormon family called the westons that we lived with for the first three months and uh, yeah, they really helped us out. They gave us like an old Ford Fiesta and like they helped, they helped us buy the house next to them so they could kind of help us out if we ever needed, you know, anything. Do you speak uh, German? I did when I first moved here. But uh, man, kids in kindergarten are cruel. I was called like Nazi and Hitler because I only spoke German. And I just quickly forgot that because my parents didn't speak it at home, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah, this is what I wanted to talk about. So, like, was it were you picked on as a kid? Um. Uh, a little bit. I mean, basically, like when I first moved here, I, I didn't speak the language. So kids kind of, you know, they picked on me for that. But then I made friends. But then as soon as I got friends, we moved another town over and I was like, I got glasses. So then I was like the kid in third grade with glasses and got made fun of for that, you know. <sighs> but but I mean, I always I always found kids, you know, it's, I, I mean, I think everybody gets picked on until you find ways to to, to shoot back, you know, mm-hmm. or, or defend yourself or just brush it off. You know, is it hard for you to trust people? Um, sometimes, but it's also like, you know, through everything I've been through, I think that I've learned that if you, if you stop trusting people, if you stop believing in the good of people, like that's when the evil wins, you know, mm-hmm. it's like people can break you down. People can make fun of you. People can fuck you over. People can cheat on you, take things from you. And they only really win if it changes who you are, you know, mm-hmm. if it changes being like, I don't trust people anymore, man. I'm, it's, it's me against the world. You know, like that's not the mentality. I mean, granted, you have to know that in the world anyway, that it's, it, it all comes down to you in the end, you know? Mm-hmm. But I also think that people are good. You know, I've seen, I mean, through trusting strangers, strangers, I've gotten where I'm at in music. You know, I've trusted people that promote my shows that I've never met. I've trusted people that I've, you know, I meet at shows. I'm like, Hey, can I stay, stay in your couches tonight? So I don't have to get a hotel room and save some money. And yeah. you know, I'm friends around the country because I trusted strangers. So. Man. That's beautiful. So when you're addicted to opiates, did you not trust anyone? Like, did that change your perspective on people? I don't think so, man. I mean, opiates by nature, they kind of mellow you the fuck out, you know? So, so it was just, I'd say, I'd say if anything, I was just more neutral, you know, uh-huh. at a time when I would, I would have been really paranoid and really depressed. And I still was, it kind of allowed me to just function, you know? And I mean, the, the whole thing too was during that whole time, my dad had cancer. And he was like dying of cancer for like eight years. He was like in and out of treatment and what just spreading fuck? and stuff. So it was like, I was, I was like the night that I got stabbed, my mom had gotten back from Denver uh, at, at like eight o'clock 
with my dad who was like getting like this treatment that like made his face all puff up, you know, chemotherapy. So she was taking care of him. She gets home. The cops come to her door and are like, oh, your son's been in an accident. He's been stabbed. He, doesn't, he might not make it, you know? So she was just bearing the brunt of all of it for the family. Oh, my God. How, so how strong is your mom? Well, she's the strongest person I know. She could beat me up for really? sure. And, and I mean, she's just she's just amazing. It's like, you know, I I always, you know, because my, my parents were always wary. They always pushed education like they, they, they wanted me to pursue the arts. But like, you know, as as a young kid who liked hip hop and was white in Colorado, they didn't see a future for me in music. You know, yeah. they were just kind of, that's cool. You're doing that, but you need a backup plan, you know. And um, so for a long time, it was like a lot of, and you know, I get stabbed and all the, all, all the things that happened to me, you know, opiate addiction, getting stabbed, uh, getting a felony, all these different things. Like it just enforced that I was on the wrong path, with them, you know? Yeah. But like my, my biggest supporter, you know, she's at all my, she's like my play in Colorado, she's at the shows. She's like screaming, you know, she's meeting people in the, in the audience. She's like, my Michael's mom, you know, she's awesome. And she's, uh, we have a really strong relationship now too. I think, you know, um, I lived with her after my dad passed away and uh and she just you know see, seeing her seeing her through the through the years struggle so much and now she's like retired and just can just enjoy her life she's an amazing person i mean she still busts her ass and does a ton of stuff around the house and always has plants and stuff you know what she like come to my house and be like i'm gonna start standing your deck so you can stain it while i'm here and i'm like what are you doing mom relax you know <laughs> is she add is she always trying to make something she's like type- nothing very like her her way of dealing with like stress and anxiety was like cleaning and making sure everything was spotless at home you know yeah she'd like get a long job and be like stressed out and she'd just start cleaning the kitchen or the bathroom or something you know so it was like she 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 just liked things tidy you know she's one of those people that won't take painkillers after surgery because she doesn't like feeling disoriented you know yeah yeah so what did she teach you about work ethic i mean she just taught me the i mean really it's like i feel like i got to see the american dream firsthand you know and I know that for a lot of people, that's it's it's not even a possibility, you know, with like the, the social political climate that we're in. But I, I was able to come. We were able to come here with nothing. We had like maybe four hundred dollars and a couple bags when we moved here, you know. And you know, by the time I graduated high school, my parents had paid off their house. Had we built a solar and wind powered cabin as like a little vacation spot on the like Colorado Wyoming border, um, you know. And and they built it themselves. Like my dad, had, you know, I was like digging the 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 septic tank with him you know i was helping him set up the solar panels and all the stuff so it was like i got to see i mean the biggest thing a parent showed me is that you can just you can do anything you know like even before youtube you can read about stuff and just do it you know like you don't need a professional to do it you are you recording right now what's going on behind you oh no this is this is my this is my studio oh i hear like music in the background dude ghosts Man, you're hearing the ghost play a song for you, man. She likes you. Hold on. So is there a ghost in this house? Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I felt things, but it's not. It's definitely not like the last house. The last house was built in 1908, and it was like downtown Denver. Had this creepy crawl space that like, I just felt like there was bodies in it. And uh, yeah, it was definitely a much creepier place. And I mean, the crazy thing is that, you know, like my wife had seen it. My friend Jason had seen it. My old roommate, roommate AC, had seen it. Uh, I when I moved, I let late night radio and his and his girlfriend Danielle live there, and they both saw it, you know, or like felt it, and it was just, you know, it, it's crazy because people are like, yeah, whatever, man, you're kind of a weird, you're, you're a little stoner weirdo, you, you ghost. But then like they come there and they stay there, like, oh, I saw the ghost, you know. Holy. So. F- it is halftime at the Andy Fresco Interview Hour. 
Hey, uh, this is Nick, and I'm here with the halftime. Andy has asked me to do a show review. So, yes, I give shows a positive review. I like shows. Do you want me to review a specific show? Friends, the most overrated sitcom in history, and here's why. It's not that good, okay? It's not funny. The men are terrible on that show. The reason it got famous is because it was on right after Seinfeld. Okay, and another thing. Uh, this whole Lil Nas X Satan thing, where the Christians are up in arms like it's Marilyn Manson in 1996 again. You guys, shut up. You invented Satan, okay? There would be no Satan if it wasn't for, for the religion, for Christians, okay? So how are you going to get mad at people for using imagery of something that you invented, unless you're suing him for copyright infringement? That's really the only claim I feel like they have. He's using your shit. Thanks. God damn it. It's just a goddamn rap song. Bye. You know, I want to get back to your childhood. This is so, dude, this, this is crazy. Like, when did you start meeting Derek from Pretty Lights? Like, I heard you were, like, young friends or? Eighth grade, we, we, we met at the end of eighth grade. Um, and then we started, like, in ninth grade, I went to this program called IB, which is, like, the International Baccalaureate Program, where you can, like, during high school, you kind of do advanced classes and start taking uh, college credits and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I schools right when he was coming to the school that I was at because he'd been like moving school to school I guess he was like you know he's a little troublemaker uh you know uh, yeah. and he was in, like a lot of like uh like church schools that didn't like his behavior I think uh so, so he went to public school finally and um I remember like the first time I saw him I was like walking from the bus stop from my my high school when he was walking to where it was at and he had like a shaved head and, and like a white polo shirt and had a girl on each arm was just like, what's up? And I was like, man, this guy's so cool. I want to hang out with this guy. <laughs> and you're like ninth grade, you see someone just macking, you're like, man, that's that's the dude. Damn. And then I remember like, um, we both went to, we both knew a mutual friend and we both skateboarded in his house. And Derek showed up with like a skateboard with like no grip tape. And he's like, I'm just trying out this new style. <laughs> oh my God. So what did you like about him? Like fearless? Like he had like a swag to him that you didn't have? Like what 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 you what was attracted attracting to him? He was like he was like very confident and like but also like goofy. You know what I mean? Like like when people can be both kind of like like uh like confident and 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 uh and very attractive to and then kind of have a leader a leader vibe, but then also have like the goofiness where you're like this dude's goofy, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, you know? Uh, I don't know. And we just, I mean, one day he just showed up at the skate spot with a bass guitar and I was playing guitar and keys and stuff like that. And I, we, I was playing with a drummer and I was like, yo, we're looking for a bassist. You should play with us, you know? So in ninth grade, we started playing in bands together and, uh, you know, played with different drummers throughout high school and just kept it going. You know, we went to college at the same spot in CU Boulder. Um, and it just evolved, you know, it just evolved from, from band name to band name, but it was always the two of us with other people. Yeah. So like, I mean, You've worked with this guy for so long. It must have been heartbreaking when he just fucking didn't care that you got fucking stabbed up and he just kept going on with his career. I mean, I don't think it was as much he didn't care. I think he just, you know, like, like he was he was starting to just play out shows and seeing what worked in the live setting for electronic music. And I was still kind of like in that, I want to make heady down-tempo stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, just, you know, I, I... You know, th th this is always a hard topic because I never want him to think that I'm coming off as, you know, critiquing him because it's, I don't know what I would do in this position, you know, and it's like we're, we're on good terms now, you know, yeah. and, and, and you're young. I mean, fuck. 
and 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 the last thing I want to do is is rehash old beef because it's like uh, that. I mean, yeah, that shit bothered me for a while, but it's like I've come to terms with it, and it's like the shit that happened to me since our split made my life infinite times better. You know, like I, I did. I mean, I met my wife. We were both working at Walmart when I was like, at like posts. You know, I I basically like after I got stabbed about six months to a year after I healed. I started getting a, her- a double hernia on my belly button where my small intestine was like poking out like three inches. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I didn't have insurance because they dropped me when I was like 25 for my family insurance. So I started working at Walmart because I was the only place that would just hire me flat out and give me insurance after six months, I think, you know? Yeah. And you uh, had and that I, hernia for six months? I had the hernia for a year. Yeah. Before you fucking fixed it? Yeah. I, I mean, dude. Oh my I was God. Like, You're crazy. Yeah. I would like to, I would like lean back and like pop it back in. <laughs> Were you on opiates in here? Uh, no, no, I was clean. I got clean in uh, 2008. Did you ever go to st- rehab or? No, I I got I, I mean, the whole thing is, with anything, it's like if you're not ready to change, you can tell your family you want to change. You can you know you can have people, cut you off. You can do whatever, but it's like. And I went through that. I went the ups and downs of like lying to my family, being like, oh yeah, I quit. You know, I'm I'm done for sure. But then it was just at some point I was just like, man, I got to change. And I got on this stuff called Suboxone, um, which is like it basically like it's kind of like an abuse where it like it blocks your receptors from being able to 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 use opiates, you know, so mm-hmm. it doesn't make you kind of like pacifies your your need for it. And I got off of it in three months. Um, my doctor was actually like the last time I went in, she was like so proud of me. She's like, I'm going to not even charge you for this, this meeting. So it's dope. Um, but a big part of that was like at that time I was like going with my dad to uh he, he was at the at nih in in uh in maryland um doing a stem cell transplant for cancer so like and i was and this is one of those things it's like man if i hadn't fucked up in my life i wouldn't have been able to go help my dad because i was the only one in my family that didn't have like a job or you know yeah didn't have going on that i couldn't put on hold for a couple months to go be with my dad so you know um the pieces fell together and i was able to to go be with him and take him to the doctor every day and take him for his labs and live with him, you know, wash him when he needed to be washed and that kind of stuff and just kind of take care of him and give back to the person that took care of me. And that taught me a lot. And it also like, it, it was, it made me want to be sober even more, you know, it made me want to be there with him. Well, opiates compounded. I mean, the, the opiates, the opiate use was compounded by the fact that my dad was dying and I didn't want to face it, you know? And I, and I felt so like shitty being a piece of shit that I didn't want to like go be with him. So I was just like, on my own living in the same town as my parents not wanting to and not showing up for dinners and stuff because I was too ashamed you know damn so did you have closure did he pass away I didn't know yeah he passed away in 2010 like a week before I dropped my first album uh, did he listen and, to it yeah, like I was I was really sad because I was like man I just wanted to see him see, see him have him see my success you know see, see that I could make it on my own and see that like the shit actually worked out you know did you and, ever have resentment towards him, or he was your you're always his fan? I, I was always his fan. I mean, I the resentment I had at the time, I in perspective, I can understand. You know, like what was he, it? He, well, he, I mean, he, you know, he, he would just like I, like when I failed out of college, he like erased all of my music software off my computer and shit. Like you know, like just stuff like that. Uh, and and it pissed me off because like I lost like the first year of the beats I produced and stuff. You know, when oh, I was like first fuck. actually like serious about producing. But it's like, I mean, dude, he, he put me into college and I fucked up, you know? And he yeah. gave me the computer and he's like, that's my computer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so wipe it. when you, what did, what, sorry, keep going, keep going. Yeah. What did, what did you not like about college 
versus did you always knew you're just going to be a musician? Like why, why'd you even go in the first place? If you always knew you're going to quit. I, I liked education. I liked information. You know, I like learning things and I got to college and I realized it's just high school 2.0, you know, <laughs> I don't have parents around. So they're like, Oh, I'm going to try cocaine and I want to make out with a bunch of people. You know, it was just yeah. like, it wasn't this higher, you know, a- academia that I thought it was going to be. And I, I just honestly, like, it was like right when Napster hit. So I was just like, I was like download, like we had like T3 connection at CU and I was like, oh, this is so fast. And I was just downloading a bunch of music, downloading things I could sample and just like for the first time, and because my parents were really strict and like had a very Eastern European upbringing, this is like the first time in my life where I didn't have any supervision, you know? So I was yeah. just like sitting there smoking bowls and playing Tony Hawk, listening to, to, to new music and being like, oh, if I leave right now, I can make it to class. And then 10 minutes later, like, oh, if I leave right now and take my bike, I can make it Oh, if I leave in 10 minutes i can catch the last end and it's like oh shit i missed it you know um so holy shit bro it was i would i was a dude that would show up to to the to the class and they'd be like handing back tests that i didn't take you know (laughs) was there pressure like do you you have siblings no i'm an only child only child so was there pressure for perfection because your fucking parents were so fucking scholars and shit and also they were just like, dude, we gave up our lives to give you a better one. And you just fuck around. What the fuck? You know? Yeah. Did you, did you have closure with your dad about that stuff before he died? Like, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, the last part of the last part of his life, I was there with him. You know, I was, I was working, I was, I went back to like online education while I was on house arrest, taking care of him. House it, arrest. It, what? Why were you on house arrest? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Michael, what the fuck? <laughs> give it to me. After I got out of the hospital, and was on opiates, uh, I didn't really have that many ways of making money. So I started kind of hustling a little bit so I could get my own, you know? Were you um, selling opiates? Yeah, I was selling opiates. I was selling a little bit of blow. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it was small quantities. You know, it wasn't like I wasn't stacking money or anything. I was just basically like getting enough to, to like pay my rent a little bit and and uh, and have my own supplies so I didn't get dope sick. Um, but one of the guys that I, that I was getting from was... Uh, Hold on, say that again. Your your microphone broke up. This dude named Kenny Kaur, who who went down basically, but uh, you know he 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 was like he was like kind of like a silent partner in the Mishawaka back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's actually a funny story too. Him and his him and his partner um, that 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 ran it, they came out from the East Coast under direction of like the organized crime out there, and they were buying it up to burn it down for insurance. And after the first year of Mishawaka, they actually booked enough shows to make like twenty thousand dollars profit. So they're like, ah, we'll just keep running it. And so it just kept being a theater <laughs> burning down ever since like 72. That's sick. Uh, so that guy basically, you know, he'd known me from that and saw that I was like a struggling musician, like down on his luck, you know, was kind of fronting me some stuff to help me get by. And one time I went to his house and he got a call and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can have a, I can have my friend. Hey, can you drop something off for me? I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, I'll, get, I'll take a hundred bucks off your tab. Just drop off this, you know, this quarter of Coke to to some dude he'll meet you at your house oh. i think it's fishy and it was an undercover cop and i didn't know it he was supposedly like the guitarist for my friend my friend's band um, and i showed up and you know i gave, gave it to him he's like thanks he's like you got anything else and i was like oh yeah i got a little bit of you know some black tar that i just you know he's like oh yeah i'll take that so basically they, they kind of like entrapped me you know yeah calling me to try to get me to 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 take them to this dude kenny and I just was a dummy and I was just like, oh no, but I can, you know, I can get something for you, you know? So they basically had me on three different deals. Um, were, were where, 
and, and the, the, the fucked up thing is this is like two years after I got clean, right? Because I like I got pulled over in 2009. I got clean like at the end of 2007. And I was just driving to one of my first shows back. At the time, I was like living with my parents, taking care of my dad. I was like his, his caregiver. I was working at Walmart full time, getting straight A's at University of Phoenix online. And I get pulled over on the, on the way to the show. And the cop's like, oh, you were swerving a little bit. And I was like, all right, I'm not. I'm not on anything. I'm completely sober. I'll, you know, I'll take a breathalyzer or whatever. So pulls me out of the car and, and like tells me to turn around and starts handcuffing me. He's like, you're under arrest for three counts of felony or class one felony drug distribution, blah, blah. And I was like, oh shit. And they had actually planted a gram of Coke loose in my passenger side handle. Like not even in a bag, just like dust. And they were like, what's this white powder in your car? And I'm like, I don't know, cookie crumbs are like, ha ha, very funny. We're going to test it. And I was like, test it. And they come back and they're like, red, pure cocaine. We're what? Like, this is entrapment. It didn't make a police report or nothing. It was just like they, were, they just they were wanted just, an excuse to, you know, pull you over. Well, they just wanted to basically have me be like, oh, shit. Yeah, I got coke back in my house. You can, you know, that kind of thing. And I didn't. I'd, I'd been away from that stuff for two years and stuff, you know, so it's just it was this crazy thing where I was just like, this is the stuff you hear about in movies, you know, where cops like plant drugs on you. And they're not even good at it. They plant like loose drugs. Like, oh, oh my God. And you were clean through this? I, mean, I was smoking a little bit of weed, but that's about it, you know? So you're just doing this for the hustle. Make some money. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was I was doing that for the hustle back in the day. This is two years after I quit. You know, I'd like yeah. gotten this girl. And that's one of those things I was like, man, you know, if if the point of law is rehabilitation, I rehabilitated myself. I yeah. was like an upstanding citizen. I was pay, I was paying taxes. I was working a job. I was going to school. I was taking care of my dad who was dying of cancer. You know, like what what more are they going to do to turn my life around? You know, I get that you have to have penance if you do something wrong, you know, but yeah. it's like I was facing 16 to 48 years. What the fuck? Are you serious? Do you feel like you have bad luck? Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I, mean, I mean, think about any movie that's good. Think about like a Coen Brothers movie. It's all about characters that got bad luck, but they're awesome. You know? Yeah, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to shout out to that, too. Let's go, Michael. Let's go, big dog. Okay, so how'd you get out of 48 years of prison? Um, I basically like I, you know, my dad, my dad had been a librarian for the, the county jail. Yeah. Uh, because, right. Um, and because he just wanted to be around books. And this is a way to kind of help people and be like a like a positive force for them in jail. You know, whereas yeah. like most people they met in jail were just like treated them like criminals and didn't care about them. You know. Yeah. Like the county jail had like all my like all my high school CDs. My dad would bring it in for like the listening material and stuff. You know. Yeah. I'd have people from like the jail like writing me letters like, yo, I heard you see dog is dope. <laughs> oh my god. But Dude. yeah, like like you know, through that he, he knew a he knew a lawyer. Uh-huh. He knew a lawyer that had done good work and luckily my parents put up money and got me out of like you know, they 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 trusted that I was actually clean that I wasn't fucking around. So they they put up money and got me a lawyer and we got we got it down to just one one count of felony and I mean, I remember when I was going to the courtroom, they, 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 the, the DA still didn't have, you know, the prosecutor still didn't have a guarantee that I wasn't going to go to jail for a long time. You know, it was just kind of like, all right, we'll see what the judge says, you know. And the girl before me had like even less of a, of a thing than I did. You know, she had she got caught with like a, a, a weed pipe and some weed and she was going to jail for like three years. And I was like, oh, man, this judge is not being lenient. But, you know, I pled my case. And I think the fact that my dad was on cancer or was, was on, on cancer treatment and living at home and I was there with them, I was just like, I'll take long, I'll take, you know, six to nine months or whatever. Or, or I, I mean, they gave me like six months of house arrest, basically, instead of doing 
hard time, which was a, a blessing, you know? Oh, my God. You, that saved your life. Yeah, saved my life, you know? Um, and it was... Uh, Did they knew you were clean? Like, you were taking... You took drug tests, at, and they knew nothing was in your body. Bailed out. Like, the, like the morning I got bailed out, I, like, went and, and took a drug test first thing, you know? Just to, like, show them, like, I, I don't have any of that shit that you try to plan on me in me, you know? Yeah. There's nothing else, that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah. You know, it was... Uh, it was a crazy time, you know, like I, but, but at the same time, like I made my first album that like was really successful then, you know, like I was at home, I would just, I would go to work at Walmart, come back and just, you know, like have, have a meal with my dad, hang out with him for a second and go in the basement and just work on, on, in my little home studio, you know, so and you wrote, every day, so you, driven, you know, you wrote that record while he was dying. Yeah, man. It was crazy too. Cause I was finding samples that were just like, like talking about like my, my uncertainty about what happens next after death, you know, there was like a, one of them was like, where do you go when your lights come when your lights go out? One of the one was a uh, death in the morning coming over, turn my head and my father was gone. You know, that kind of thing where I was just like, I'm finding these like weird records where it's like the first thing I put on, it's like telling the story, you know, mm-hmm. In a lot of ways that helped me deal with that because it was like, I didn't, you know, there's a lot of talks that I, I, I didn't know how to have with my dad about like what he's feeling, you know, um, like you were afraid was, to talk to him about death. It's just, you don't, you know, like you're still hopeful the whole time. You still, you don't want to bring that, you know, you don't want to be like, Hey, so what if you die? You know, cause you, you yeah, want to be like optimism until you know? I mean, the end. He was like, he was like certain that he was going to turn around. I mean, I remember like what, like the, 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 the day that it cha- all changed when he went on hospice and he had like less than a week left. He, uh, I was working and I got a call from my mom. that's like, uh, we're at the hospital. You should, you should come here. You know? And I was like, Oh fuck. You and I told my happening. Mom, my boss, I was like, listen, I, I gotta go. And they're like, well, you might not have a job when you get back. I'm like, well, fuck you then, man. I, this is my dad's dying, you know? And I Walgreens and I, and I, said that? Uh, uh, Walmart. Oh, yeah. Walmart said that? Jesus, fuck. Insensitive motherfuckers, dude. Your dad's dying. And then and then I I uh I called like the, the house arrest people because yeah, I'd like call because I had an ankle monitor, you know, when I was at work. I had to call anywhere I went. And I was like, I have to go to the hospital right now. They're like, well, you're not approved for it. And I'm like, well, have the cops meet me there, man. Go arrest me there, you know? I'm not going to miss my dad right now, you know? Yeah. And what they say? uh, They're like, all right, cool. You know, they they kind of ran it up. I I think she was being sympathetic, but she was also just trying to be like, listen, this isn't how it works, you know? Yeah. And it was fine. Um, No cops. But but, but yeah, I remember going in and seeing my dad. And the doctor walked in and told him his, because he had a kidney removed because he had kidney cancer. And the second kidney just went into failure, you know? And I just watched like everything leave my dad, you know, it was just like all of a sudden he was just like his, he like went into himself and was just like, you could tell he was just dealing with like, what do I got to prepare inside to be ready for the next level? Did he, um, did you have, con- what was your conversation like? Did you have closure with him during that time or was it too hard to yeah. do that? He was on hospice and like, he was like in a, a little bed in the bit in the living room and our whole family came and like lived with us for like about a week. Um, and it was, uh, we had some closure. I mean, he was just like, his body was so worn down that he was just kind of like in a semi almost like like sleep state you know he was just like we just gave him morphine and he just laid there but it was funny uh you know because his legs were swollen because of his kidneys and he, he just had a sense of humor you know i remember i, I remember uh i remember at one point i was like hey man your, your, your legs look better he's like oh why don't you put them online and sell them we can make a little money you know <laughs> he always had like you know even to the end he was just wisecracking and didn't let it get to him so but yeah, yeah. And, and going back to my album, like, I, you know, I'd made all this stuff and I was just like, man, he never got to hear it. I was hoping he'd make it and he could hear it. And Did, then like six months later, I was like cleaning out his office and he had like stolen all like these burned mixes of my CD from my car. Oh, so he'd been that, stuff like on his own without telling me. So oh, that's, like, that's beautiful. That's the love. 
he knew. He knew what you're passionate about this and stuff. Things like that that I know. Like, I know that he was just trying to be a good dad when he was trying to keep me from, you know, throwing my life away to music because it was, you know, it was, it was a thing where, where, uh, you know, I, I saw that like he, he always wanted to help me, you know, he was, he was always really wanting to help me. And he, I mean, he was a musician, so he wanted me to succeed, but at the same time, you know, he didn't want me to, to feel what he felt, which was just like, Oh man, I, it didn't work out. You know? Yeah. Damn. What the fuck? D Michael, this is in fucking insane, dude. So you then, so now you start your solo career, right? Yeah. It starts taking yep. off. Yeah. It starts taking off. Um, you know, Derek had, uh, had, had, uh, given my album to his booking agent, Hunter Owens, or no, I mean, Hunter, Hunter, what the fuck is his last name? Hunter Williams. Um, God, oh, Buck Williams kid. Yeah. Buck Williams kid. Right. Cause, uh, and, and, you know, I remember like the day my album came out, I was like, I just gotten off a house. I got off, off a house arrest three days before my album came out. Uh, and I went down to Denver to see Derek and we like went out to dinner and stuff and hung out and, you know, on the way back from dinner, he like called Hunter and was, he was just asking, cause I was just like, I need some advice on how to get shows and stuff. And Hunter's like, yeah, man, I'll, I want to book you. And I was like, what? You know, all of a sudden I had a booking agent, <laughs> like just like that. And it was like, that opened so many doors because I mean, as you know, as an independent musician, when, before you have a booking agent, you're just like sitting there trying to negotiate how much you're worth. And that sucks to feel like that, you know, to be like, well, maybe I'll do it for like a, you know, can of Coke and some Skittles, you know, <laughs> Dude, but this industry is so fucked up sometimes, <laughs> you know, and it's just crazy how you see like, same people that were telling you no all of a sudden like yeah how about how about a thousand dollars no you're no name you know and you're like fuck really that's all it took just one person to believe in me <laughs> you know in in that funny like you, it just takes someone to open the door for you it's kind of fucked up it's like someone has to tell you you're cool to be cool speak of the devil mickey call me <laughs> oh shit dude um do you have to take that are you good for a second hold on i, I told him i got something going on until until I'm telling ready. <laughs> All right, cool. So let me um we'll we'll, we'll close this in a, in a in a second. Um, so how long? So when did it start really popping for you? Your solo career. 2010, end of 2010. I started to go. I went on the road. That was the first time I'd been on the road for like a long time. It was like three three months, three and a half months, or something like that. Yeah. And I was out with Fresh and Mimosa, and then went out with Pretty Lights for like a month and a half, just doing like first of three. Um. And it was great, but it was also like one of those things where like, I mean, I was making $250 a show and, uh, you know, I was, I was driving myself. I was, you know, with after hotels and stuff like that and gas, it was like, there was nothing left in, in commissions. It was just like, you know, I came home after three months uh, to my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And it was just like, Hey, I have no money. And there's a bunch of pictures of me with girls all over the country after shows, that, <laughs> you know? And so it was just kind of like a, a tumultuous time coming home. Cause you're just like, that was a success in the sense that I went out and did shows, but I didn't, I don't have rent, you know? Yeah. Like even after being out around the country for, for three months, it was just like, it was very, um, you know, it was, it was cool, but it was also made me realize I have to figure out a way to do it where it's, it's sustainable, you know? And how'd you do because, it? I mean, just, just being like, like part of it was like what I said, like meeting people, staying on people's couches, you know, um, not, like you know using the buyout to get food instead of instead of booze and things you know yeah. like just things like that just small little little uh little changes little corn you know you have a little bit when you come home you know and 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 honestly it's like you know like there's 
when you're on one of those first tours that like when you first come out you're gonna lose money anyway because you're just it's basically just trying to get your name out you know yeah like, totally. i was a friend from it you know yeah so did you did your wife almost like uh or your girlfriend almost break up with you up for, for a while we broke up for like a couple months and then we got back together which was actually good because i think like you know i mean she'd been with me since before i since like right before i got on house arrest and stuff you know and yeah. i mean i met her working at walmart she was she was putting herself through nursing school and was working at the produce department with me wow. and i remember seeing her it was like right when i was like finishing off detoxing from opiates and i was like she was wearing like a chemical brothers hoodie I was like oh that girl's that girl's cute and and, and i kept looking over and she walked over to me when i was like stacking apples or something I was like, oh, she's coming to talk to me. And she was like, are you okay? You're really sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> and like the next time I talked to her, I was like, you want to see my scar? <laughs> you know, I was just like, what? So how to meet people. But uh, but it worked out, you know. And, and now she's together. your wife. And now she's my wife. She's, she's wonderful. We got two beautiful cats. Oh, fuck yeah. Hey, what would you tell younger Michael what you learned now? Keep falling up. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's one of those things that's like every time I get frustrated with things that aren't going my way, like a few months later, it all makes sense. You know, a few months later, like something happens where I'm like, if I would have been on the road, then I wouldn't have met this person. Or I wouldn't have been able to make this song or do this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, it becomes it, it's this thing where like. And I've always felt this, you know, it's like we, we, we sometimes, especially in this industry, it's easy to be like, oh, I'm missing opportunities or this isn't working out the way I could or I didn't maximize my potential or whatever, you know, but it's like. All, all story, like no story ever goes like, this is what the character wanted to do, and that happened. The end. You know, it's always like this is what they wanted to do. Everything got fucked up for like the rest of the book, and then right at the very end, it all pulls together. You know, and that's yeah. what makes the book good. It's like the adventures. You know, like the, the, the missteps and the and the trial and error and the learning things. It's like, you know, if I hadn't gotten if I hadn't gotten stabbed, um, and and had all that horrible shit happen, I wouldn't have been on house arrest and working at Walmart. I wouldn't have met my wife. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, all all these things that fell into place because of things that at the time I was like, this is horseshit. Why is this happening to me? You know, mm. what a so, so I would just say, just keep believing that your story isn't over, you know? Yeah. I mean, what a fucking story, dude. I, you know, Nick told me this was, this is going to be a good one. And this, it, the expectations insane because I know Crawford, your manager, he used to manage my buddy's band, wild Adriotic, And, um, Crawford. He ran a lot of clubs, uh, you know, he was, he was doing uh, uh, talent buying and things like that for a lot of clubs like uh, Sherpa and Yetis back in the day, which was in 30, 320 South and stuff like that. And just all along the, the, the I-70 corridor, he was like, when we were in like our fledgling bands, like he was a dude that would give us shots and stuff, you know, like up for, for bands we loved, you know? Yeah. So, so and, and, and really it's one of those things that I think in management, it's like sometimes, sometimes people want to have someone that's just like this, like industry hotshot. But a lot of times those people will like, steer you astray and want to like, manipulate your career into ways that like are profitable for like the spark and you know the flash in the pan kind of moment yeah and I think Crawford just believes in me which is like I'll stick with him man he's he he believes in me and he really like actually loves my shit you know I remember like like Derek met him first when uh me and the Pretty Fantastics were doing uh Red Rocks opening for him and he was just like dude your manager is so awesome he like really fucking vibes with your shit and I'm like that's why that's why I believe in him you know because yeah. he believes in and it's just like I'd rather have someone like that than someone that's just like going to open all these doors for me and push me into a room that I'm not ready for, you know? Yeah, totally. Michael, I'll let you go back to Mickey Hart. I know he's, I know he's, uh, yeah, he's got you. Uh, um, but thank you for this because I feel like 
the most important thing in life is to hear people's stories and to hear how you get through, you know, death and fucking isolation and, you know, thinking you're a communist and getting beat up for fucking thinking you're a Nazi. Like, what the fuck, bro? And you could hear it in your music. And now it totally makes sense. Thanks, man. It's been an honor, man. I was really nervous about this. You know, it's like it's been a long time since I've done any kind of interview or anything because of the pandemic. And so it's just uh, I appreciate you give me a chance to tell my story and talk to me man it's been great meeting you yeah bro we got to write some music together we should do that me you and nick yeah man anytime you want to come out west uh i got i got a spot i got tons of instruments and old synths and and keyboards and tens uh, ten thousand records you know i'll come out you know my buddy dave schools lives right next to you he's a great dude he's actually one of the dudes that that, uh you know when i started working with mickey dave dave because i met him through through buck williams and hunter you know Mm -hmm. um I opened a couple of shows for them and he was like the only dude from widespread that really just kind of was like, Hey, what's up, man? I'm, I'm Dave. You know, he's just like such a great dude. Um, he got me off of Coke. That's great, man. Yeah. He's, he, he's a good, he's a, he's a good person. You know, he really, you could just, you just feel comfortable around him, you know, but he told Mickey cause he'd been in Mickey's bands. He was like, don't fuck with this dude, man. This guy's special, you know? Yeah. So like, I think that he's, you know, him and him and singer are a big part of why I have, my life out here and i'm really thankful for them man so yeah come out and visit us man yeah shout out to dave schools let's fucking go let's fucking go um all right i got one last question for you and then um i'll let mickey have you (laughs) um what do you want to be remembered by michael manier uh i mean i want to be remembered by making music that people that 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 become that that people are reminded about i i i I, I, sorry man i'm stumbling over my words uh I want to be remembered for for being a soundtrack for people's good and bad times. You know, like yeah. I, I, I want to be, I want to be able to, like I, re, I feel like I already been able to do this. It's like you know, like the, the biggest the biggest accolade is being able to be a drop back into the pool of of inspiration that you got from music. You know, like yeah. like when I have people that that are inspired by my music to make music, or when I when I talk to people and I can give them tips or or things like that, or you know, like or work with young artists that that you know or just shooting their shot and like yo you want to co-produce a song or something it's like that's that's the memory i want to have i want to be remembered that like i was a good dude you know yeah well that I, that I wasn't i mean i've been i've been lucky because of people like crawford and even people like hunter that i was just able to do what i wanted you know and a lot of times i was going i was playing soft ass music at dubstep shows and i was like what the fuck am i doing here you know yeah but, but i was able to do that and that's that's I mean, that's a legacy in itself to me, you know? Yeah. Well, keep doing it. Keep fucking rocking. Tell uh, Mickey, get on the get on the podcast. Let's get Mickey on this show, too. And um, be safe out there. And uh, whatever whatever you're doing out there, it's working. So thanks for being alive, and thanks for not dying over a fucking stabbing over a quarter pound of weed. That's fucking nuts to me, dude. Well, thanks cheers, for, man. Yeah, cheers, man. Well, See you in person sometime. Yeah, you will. Have a great day, Michael. That was awesome, dude. Thank you. Oh, man. What a fucking... Whoa! Wow. Maybe one of the craziest stories um, life. That... What the fuck? Yo, shout out to Michael for being vulnerable. That shit's nuts. Damn. All right, we'll catch you after this. Before we continue on the podcast, I wanted to talk about this project I was um, involved in called Isolation Concerts for No One, brought to you by DistroKid. Basically, me and my friends 
uh, Sean Eccles, my guitar player, Kitchen Dwellers at Mahali, all hop in a car and we do these concerts um, for nobody. We did it in the Navajo, we've done it in like Powell, we did it, well, I mean, we've done it in all these isolated areas and it was such a great experience. So come on and watch it every Tuesday for the next three weeks. Um, it is April 6th, 13th, and 20th on Fanstone Live. Uh, District Kid presented it. District Kid is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music to, onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, and pretty much anywhere else people continue to consume music. Starting at just 19 99 per year, you can get unlimited uploads and keep 100% of your earnings. DistroKid is the standard in digital music distribution. 7% off your first DistroKid membership. Just use distrokid.com slash VIP slash isolation. All right, we'll see you at fans.live for isolation. Concerts for nobody. What an interview. Wow. His I haven't even heard died. it yet and I already know it was amazing. <laughs> I know you two. You're a great interviewer and he's a great story yeah, crazy ass story but that's it everybody i hope you had a good show today yeah did you have fun i try to have fun every day man you ready to help me write a hit record nick uh one hit song <laughs> a hit record i don't think you know krasno you should get him if you want that <laughs> krasno i wonder if krasno had a hit probably he somebody probably, i'm sure he's written on something yeah. he's working on a project i don't know if they're um Maybe you're not able to, to talk announce, about it. yeah, but yeah. he's working on something fucking big. I'm and, sure he and is. It's one of I our don't... friends, and it's with a big producer. Good. Um, it starts with. A yeah. I, you know, I don't know if I've done like one gig with that guy ever. He would never remember it, but uh, I just have a really deep respect for him as a musician. Yo, yo, yo! Tell me um, one thing. We'll talk quick basketball. Um, basketball, Lakers. Baby. How we feeling with Andre Drummond on the Lakers? So I think you know. A lot of people are hard on Andre Drummond because, I do, I do. He's, because so, he's never been in a winning team. But you have yeah. to look at – so here's my opinion on Andre Drummond. If he's your best guy, I don't know if you're going anywhere. But if he's your third or fourth best guy like he is in the Lakers, that's pretty fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's good in basketball for a role player like him? You want a guy that has a thing, right? And he's the, maybe the best rebounder in the NBA. Yeah, he is. He gets he's 14 he has rebounds the most. a game. No, yeah. He was on teams with guys that missed a lot of shots, to be fair. Lakers are missing. I think a lot he's going to be shots. rangy on defense. Yeah, you're big. He's big. You know, I, we're going to be slower. You're going to be slower, but that's fine. I don't think speed is your thing. Mm -hmm. Also, let's talk about the Nets signings real quick. Can we go All to the right, Nets? Yeah, go quickly. I hate the Nets because I'm just I'm trying to make this a five minute segment. Oh, it's not going to be that long. So, <laughs> just caveat emptor. I love LeBron James. Okay, uh, they got He's, Lamarcus Aldridge. That guy yeah. can't guard anybody. Yeah, I know. I don't understand what they're doing. Neither does Blake. Yeah, but I think that he's going to be better than he was on the Pistons, for sure. And he's smart. He knows where to go and what yeah. to do. I don't know. Lakers and six. Let's fucking go. Let's go. All right. And another. <laughs> I'm taking the week off. I say, I've been saying that every week, and I keep on putting on What do you mean podcast. you're taking the week off? What does that even Because I'm on tour you? tomorrow. I leave tour tomorrow. Oh, yeah. So I'm gone for a week, and I'm not. I want to focus. On, I got to start. Brian keeps on. Giving me this fucking uh, motivational speak. All right, well, you're going back on the road, and uh, we're gonna have to make just focus on the music, focus on changing the set, focus on. My Why do you need to change the set? You're gonna have the same different people at the show every night. I I, I know, but fucking jam band nerds think you need to play a different fucking show every night. No, <laughs> not if you have fans. 
You got to move it yeah, around. Yeah, you do if you only have 3,000 fans and they're the only people that go to your show in every city. Yeah, you have to play a different show every night. It's okay to only have 10 good songs. God. <laughs> well, I'm going to change this. <laughs> Way to go, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to change the set, sorry, fans. Sorry. My fans are jamming. What does that mean? <laughs> no. It's kind of true, but it I like the real. both things. All right. Um, I want you to give a motivational speech to right. jam bands okay. coming into the summer tour. Jam bands. Okay. Jam bands. Let's talk about your show. Let's talk about what you're going to do, okay, and what you have been doing. We, we need to concentrate on songwriting, and what I'm talking about here is lyrics, okay? You don't necessarily have to have lyrics. Don't say you have vocals just to have vocals. Try to have some content. Don't sing about being in a band. No more lyrics about we're on the road. No more lyrics referring to the genre of music you're playing, okay? Write about maybe something more general, like life, you know? Or just play instrumentals. Also, you don't need to play a different set every night. Just write some good songs. Put a good show together and make people happy. And there you have it. Um, and then my motivational speech is do whatever me. the fuck you want to do. <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with you, indeed? I don't know. It's just espresso. Yeah, you're jacked up. It's one o'clock. I've been thinking about jam bands, you know? Yeah, what are you thinking? I love them. That's the thing. I do, too. And, you know, there's a place for a different show every night. If you have, like, Umphreys can do a different show every night. You know why? Because they have 120 pretty damn good songs. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these bands have, like, eight good songs. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I can't comment. Uh, Thanks for being on the show, Nick. Always and forever. And uh, let's write. Always and forever. (laughs) My favorite optimist. Uh, um, Have a good night, and uh, we'll catch you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. (laughs) You tuned in to the World Saving Podcast with Andy Fresco, now in its fourth season. Thank you for listening to this episode. Produced by Andy Fresco, Joe Angelone, Chris Lawrence. We need you to help us save the world and spread the word. Please subscribe, rate the show, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're picking this shit up. Follow us on Instagram at World Saving Podcast for more info and updates. Fresco's blogs and tour dates you find at anyfresco.com. Check our socials to see what's up next. Might be a video dance party, a showcase concert, or whatever springs to Andy's wicked brain. Also, the shit show has returned. Find it! We thank this week's guest, our co-host, and all the fringy frenzies that help make this show great. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. Be your best, be safe, and we'll be back next week. No edibles were harmed in the making of this podcast. As far as we know, any similarity to actual knowledge, facts or fake, is purely coincidental.